And a couple episodes ago, Rachel and I were talking about how we wanted to diversify the type of films that are covered on this program, and we talked about how we should do a dad movie at some point. I threw out a couple of suggestions like Bullet or The French Connection or stuff like that, and one thing I was talking about is like, we should definitely do a Western at some point, because (laughs) while it has faded somewhat from the personal luster of Hollywood history, it is a pretty important part of it, and was part of it from basically the onset. Westerns exist at the dawn of cinema as a storytelling format. The 1903 film, The Great Train Robbery, is pretty groundbreaking. If you took a film course, it's going to come up at some point or oh, another. Yes, my film course had us watch it. But with all that in mind, though, there are many Westerns. Why are we talking about Stagecoach? There are a couple of reasons. Uh, for one thing, it repopularized the Western. Uh, it actually had fallen out of favor in the early sound era. Some of it largely to do for technical reasons. Reasons. It's a lot harder for that primitive sound technology to capture like horses and outdoor wind and stuff without drowning out the actors. Yeah. Why are you banging these coconuts together for you know sound of post uh, production sound effects? <laughs> yeah, there is an early Marx Brothers film called The Coconuts that highlights how difficult it was to record sound movies when it was new technology, but I'm digressing. In general, the Western had fallen out of favor for a little bit, and the success of Stagecoach meant that the Western was going to endure for another four or five decades. Yeah, but if this is like the start of, you know, what we think of as the Hollywood Western, what's the one that killed it? I don't think it was a specific one that killed it. That That's another discussion we could have, but I think part of it was, we'll bring it up in the thematic portions. Okay. Uh, another thing is that it established John Ford as a Western director. Uh, it was the first one he had directed since Three Bad Men in his first sound Western. And if you think of John Ford's directorial career, you primarily think of his Westerns. Yeah, I mean, I have seen some of, like, The Long Gray Line. That's like a non-John Ford Western, but... Other than that, I can't think of any other movies by him that I've seen that are not Westerns. Yeah, but the most important thing is that it made John Wayne into a famous actor. This was his 80th feature overall. Damn. And his first attempt at starring in an A movie since 1930's The Big Trail, which was a big old flop. Mm, yeah, it kind of reminds me a little bit of how Tom Hardy was big breakout role was supposed to be Shinzon and Star Trek Nemesis, but it bombed horribly and was like really upsetting to him. And they didn't come back out again until like inception. And you're not supposed to bring up Star Trek Nemesis. If you interview him, I actually don't hate Star Trek Nemesis, but Me that's either. A, yeah. Hey, yeah. it's another episode. That's another another episode. episode. Okay. Yeah, no, for this one. Train on track. Yeah. We're talking about stage coach. Stage coach. It's not a train. It's a coach. Yeah. Okay, my name is Ryan, it's a real deep dive, and Rachel, back I'm again, perpetual co-host. Perpetual co-host. Yeah, I thought I was going to have, like, maybe a few appearances and not have all of them. It's fun. Okay, let's talk about Stagecoach. This was Ryan's pick this week. Before we get into everything else, I'll just quickly recap the plot. All right, it takes place in June of 1880, uh, surrounds a group of strangers who board a stagecoach heading from Tonto and Arizona territory to Lordsburg in New Mexico. The passengers include Dallas, a sex worker who has been driven out of town by the Law and Order League, a group of moralistic, puritanical women. Doc Boone, the best character, who is yes. a drunken surgeon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> 
there is Lucy Mallory, a pregnant woman riding to join her cavalry uh, officer husband. And because this film was made during the Hayes Code, and therefore they couldn't directly talk about how she's pregnant, and they kind of had to dance they around dance it. They dance around it so hard. But you clocked her right away. Oh, well, I knew she, I knew there was a pregnant character in this because they went to like a, a movie poster exhibit, and it, one of them was the poster for Stagecoach, and it broke down all the characters, and it listed pregnant army wife. And plus, they filmed her in an interesting way where she's always wearing this, like, giant blanket, even though it's, like, really fucking hot out, I'm going to assume, in Arizona, Mm -hmm. so that if she did have a baby bump, it is not visible at all. And they don't even say, like, the word childbirth or pregnancy. She's married, too. She just passes out, and then Dallas is like, we got to get water and blankets. And I'm like, yeah, she's having a baby. Because this was a Chekhov's baby bump that they can't directly talk about. This pregnant woman wouldn't have joined the dangerous stagecoach through Arizona territory if she wasn't going to pop that thing out at a dramatically important moment. Oh, yeah, for sure. Then there was Samuel Peacock, a whiskey salesman, and... Out of everyone here who is just out of central casting, he is very clearly like this nebbishy, I'm fading into the background, nobody can pronounce my name, and that's a running gag. Yeah, I swear to God I've seen him in, like, other things, but I could not place him. He was very, hey, it's that guy, but more like, that guy? Like, who is he? I've seen him before. Hmm. Yeah, he's probably played the same character over and over again. Oh, yes. Yeah, okay. Buck, the second best character in the film. Yes, the second best. (laughs) Yeah, he's the stage driver, and he is looking for his shotgun guard when Marshal Curly Wilcox informs him that the guard is hunting for the Ringo Kid, an outlaw who broke out of prison after his father and brother were killed by the nefarious Luke Plummer. Knowing that Ringo is also headed to Lordsburg, Curly volunteers to be the shotgun guard. As the stage sets out, U.S. Cavalry Lieutenant Blanchard warns that Geronimo and his Apaches are on the warpath. More on that later. Oh, you have no idea. We're, we're, we're going to do our white people best to talk about this serious issue. This disturbs Mrs. Mallory, who is offered protection by gentleman gambler Hatfield. Oh my god, he's such a reply guy. There weren't even reply guys yet, obviously, but he's such like a lady, you know, he has a fedora instead of a cowboy hat reply guy. So hard. Yeah, he stumbled out of Gone with the Wind and he's like, this lady needs my protection. I know, yeah. I, I honestly thought that they were leaning towards the whole, like, he's her, re- her, he's her baby's real dad because I watched this one movie, another western with Hepburn and Tracy in it with that as a plot point but made later. I don't know. I, I It's a Hayes Code. The Hayes Code got me. At the edge of town, the stage also picks up Henry Gatewood, a banker who is running off with the money he has just embezzled. He's also married to one of the Law and Order League biddies who had uh, chased Dallas out of town. And out of all the characters in this, he is clearly the most 1939 person. Oh, yeah, he's just like a dickish businessman. Throughout the entire movie, he's talking about how uh, bankers need to be trusted more and how we we need a proper businessman to be president and that'll put the country right back on track. And he's clearly here to be this rich douchebag who everyone in the audience hates because it's the 30s and this is the worst person ever. Yeah, it really is. When he said that we needed a businessman for a president, Ryan and I droned really hard. I'm like, oh. Because the 2010s weren't the Depression, but we did have a reminder that if you just give the banking industry infinite leeway, they will fuck the rest of the country into a coma and disappear with their golden parachutes. Yeah. 
quote unquote businessman as president right now. Uh, All right, anyway, back to the, the wholesome fantasy that is stagecoach. Fantastic. Later on, the stage comes across the Ringo Kid, stranded thanks to his lame horse, and you were immediately struck by how young-looking John Wayne I is. I know! He doesn't have a gut! He has, like, no wrinkles! He doesn't look like, you know, sandpaper! He's so young! And I was like, what? I should have looked up how old he was when this came out, but he looks about 27, and he doesn't have the voice down yet. No, he doesn't. He's like, what are you doing down here, pilgrim? Yeah, not, not quite. That's my terrible John Wayne impression. I would have been disappointed if you didn't try to do a John yeah, Wayne I voice for this. I had at least one impression per podcast episode. Curly is sympathetic to Ringo's plight, but he still takes him in. When the stage reaches Dry Fork, the group learns that the unexpectedly cavalry uh, escort has left to fight the Apaches. Buck wants to turn back, but he is outvoted. Gatewood, he's trying to speak about how uh, this is for the best of the community that we press forward. He, he wants to escape the police, obviously. Yeah. Uh, the rest of them have their own uh, reasons for sallying forth. I think Peacock is the only one who votes against it. Yeah, Peacock votes against it. Mrs. Mallory votes yes, because she wants to get to her husband. And even the Ringo kid encourages them to uh, give Dallas a vote. Throughout this, Ringo is the only person who acknowledges that Dallas is a person. More on that when we get to the thematic bits. Oh, yeah. The group is outraged when Ringo has the gall to invite Dallas to sit with everyone else at the main table while they eat. He's a soiled dove. She is a soiled dove. Later on, when they're in the stagecoach and have some water, they're sharing a canteen. Hatfield offers Mrs. Mallory his silver folding cup so she won't have to drink from the same container as a fallen woman. This is possibly the most examined scene in the film. Why is it the most examined scene in the film? Because it does it imply that they knew each other at one point or he stole something from her father? Uh, that's an aspect of slut shaming, but yeah, another bit is that Mallory notices that the crest on the cup leading Hatfield to reveal that he fought under her father's command in the Confederate Army in Virginia. One other established uh, aspect of Hatfield's character is that aside from being a gentleman gambler, he is a Confederate veteran, which uh, Doc Boone fought for the Union, and they come to Oz over that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, Doc Boone just spends a good chunk of his drunken time undercutting Hatfield's faux gentleman persona at every turn. He's I mean, like, that's why he's the best character. Hatfield's talking about how he's such a sharpshooter, and Doc Boone is like, yeah, I uh, removed some bullets from last guy you had a duel with. They were in his back. <laughs> One time, Boone refers to the Civil War as the War of the Rebellion, and Hatfield's like, don't you mean the Northern Invasion? And he's like, I most certainly did not. <laughs> Yeah, they were both being thrown out of town at the same time. Yeah. So he's like, come with me, my sister in arms. Yeah. These Puritans don't deserve us. Let's walk with some dignity intact. Yeah, he takes his sign off the building and brings it with him. <laughs> Right, the coach reaches Apache Wells, where Mrs. Mallory learns that her husband has been wounded in battle, although the severity of his injury is not known. The shock sends her into labor, 
forcing Doc Boone to sober up and deliver the baby with Dallas's assistance. And once again, they cannot directly tell you what's happening. They just Mrs. Mallory gets ushered away and then a baby appears, but they're not allowed to say pregnant because the Hayes Code is stupid. Yeah, you're not supposed to depict childbirth at all. This does force John Ford to make some creative shot choices. I do think some of the best cinematography and stagecoach is the scenes where, you know, the, the lighting and the hallway and the various characters hustling back and forth and the bit where Doc Boone is chugging coffee and they splash hot water in his face and he's like, thanks, another. Yeah, I, I think that it definitely is one of the more beautiful moments in the film because of it's very quiet, even though she's obviously going into labor. Um, and it's probably one of the only moments where all of the characters, despite who they are, are united in the whole idea that we got we all got to work together here. We got to stop fighting. We got to welcome new life into this world. And I was honestly surprised that the baby was a girl. I thought it was going to be a boy because this is a movie about men doing men things. Later on that night, Ringo asked Dallas to elope with him to his ranch in Mexico. Ashamed to reveal her past, she doesn't give him a straight answer. She says that she is reluctant to abandon Mrs. Mallory and her condition. However, Dallas accepts Ringo's proposal under the condition that he escapes now and she'll join him later. Now, Ringo manages to slip away, but he immediately returns to custody when he spots uh, Apache smoke signals. He knows they're going to need another hand. Mm-hmm. The stage approaches Lee's ferry, which the Apaches have destroyed and burned to the ground. Curly uncuffs Ringo so that he can help attach locks to the stagecoach and floated her across the river. That part was actually pretty cool. The stage is then attacked by the Apaches, resulting in an extended chase scene and gunfight. And especially by the standards of the time, this is a badass action oh, scene. Yeah, yeah, I was really impressed. Especially the scene where the Ringo kid has to hop up on the roof of the stagecoach to start shooting at the Apaches or by the, the wonderful stuntman where he has to leap from horse to horse to grab the leads. bunch of uh, Apache trick riders are like falling underneath the stagecoach and uh, there's a whole bunch of shots that John Ford only wanted to do one once because he was afraid someone was going to die. Yeah, you can really tell. All right, several characters are injured in this fight, and when the ammo has run out, Hatfield prepares to shoot Mrs. Mallory in order to spare her from the t- Apache savagery. He's Which, not aware of this at all. Yeah, he gets blown away. We have extreme close-ups of his hand holding the gun, and then a gunshot, and then Hatfield drops it. And at that moment, the cavalry comes in, and I think this is the first movie I've ever seen where there is a literal cavalry coming in to save the day at the last moment. Yeah, I think so, too. Now, at Lordsburg, Gatewood is immediately re- arrested by the local sheriff. Woo-hoo! Yeah, he, he's essentially like the analog to the douchebag jock in a slasher movie who just gets knifed as shit by Jason. You're just waiting for it to happen. Yeah, and then you're happy when it does. Yeah, and like this guy is clearly set up to be the guy that you hate, but it works for me. Yeah. It's like, yeah, movie, you're clearly manipulating me, and it's working anyways. <laughs> I was like, all right, sure, he sucked. <laughs> Every moment he's doing the worst possible thing. Yeah. Like, Mallory had just squirted out the kid, and they're like, well, we should wait at least a day or two before leaving with this pregnant woman and the newborn. He's like, no, we need to leave now. Get away from the law. Oh, no, yeah, he's such a bastard. Hatfield dies, which at first you weren't sure if that happened. Yeah, because it had been a few years, but yeah, they, they're hauling him away with a sheet over his face. And so, yeah. on his face. Yeah, Hatfield's dead. The carotene's always die. Yeah. 
Mallory learns that her husband's injury is not serious. She thanks Dallas for her help and accepts her shawl as an act of goodwill. At first, she's asked Dallas if there's anything that she can do for her, and Dallas is like, what, bitch? (laughs) Dallas begs Ringo not to confront the plumbers, but he ignores her and has a standoff against them where it's three against one. It's an odd one because the big third act action sequence that just happened, and then you're just like, hey, here's another gunfight after it. It it feels anticlimactic as I'm describing it, and... I think it works about as well as anyone could possibly do it. Ford is very good at pacing this film, but yeah, you're just like... It runs a little long, in my opinion. Ringo survives the shootout and then surrenders immediately to Curly. Ringo boards a wagon to be escorted back to prison. Curly invites Dallas to accompany them for, you know, a little bit, and then announces a fake stampede with Doc Boone in order to give Ringo a pretext to escape. Ringo and Dallas ride off to Mexico together. The end. Yeah, the end. I I had never seen Stagecoach before, but I did enjoy it for what it what it was. I mean, we're going to talk about the themes of, of westerns in more detail as we go through this. But I had a good time. The action scene, uh, the chase scene uh, from the Apaches was really awesome, and still again holds up very well. For the next thirty or forty years, a whole bunch of westerns are trying to be stagecoach, including most of John Wayne's movies. And yeah, it never quite happens again. Like this is way better than what we can expect from this type of film. Yeah, I, I've watched a lot of you know Saturday morning westerns over the years. Like I, I, I have a bit of a soft spot for John Wayne because my grandfather, who had passed away last year, was always a huge John Wayne fan. So anytime I watch any John Wayne movie, I'm just like, oh, granddad loved this. So, you know, that warms my heart, even though, you know, your mileage may vary on John Wayne and what he has to say about things. More on that later. Yeah, more on that later. For the production of this film, uh, it is based upon The Stage to Lordsburg, a short story written by Ernest Haycox, a traditional Western writer in the Louis L'Amour school. This story was fleshed out with details from Guy to uh, Maspin's uh, Bull de Suf. Ford bought the story rights in 1937, shortly after it was published. Now, numerous studios shot down Ford's pitch, largely because Ford insisted on John Wayne. He claimed that Wayne was the perfect everyman and that he was just needed a chance to become a star. Producer Walter Wanger agreed to produce for half of Ford's proposed budget if uh, Claire Trevor, who played Dallas, got billing over Wayne. Uh, yeah, I was, noticed that right away when we were watching this movie. I'm like, he doesn't have top billing? Yeah, oh my. Yeah, Trevor was the most famous person in the movie at the time. Uh, Wayne was paid far less than all the other actors, except for Carradine. Why was that? None of the producers had any faith in him. Like I said, this was his 80th film, so he was mostly in hacky B-movies, mm-hmm. and they considered him to be not especially great performer. I mean, he's really good at playing John Wayne. He hasn't quite figured out what John Wayne is, as we discussed <laughs> earlier. Like, he's he's doing the voice, kind yeah. of. Yeah. Even though he looks like a baby. Yeah. David O. Selznick was briefly interested in the film, but he pushed for the film to star Gary Cooper as Ringo and Marlene Diedrich as Dallas, which that would have been interesting. Yeah, that's a, that's a choice. 
another reason that this is a noteworthy film is that it is the first John Wayne movie shot, uh, John Ford movie rather, well both, to be shot in Monument Valley. The site was pitched to him by Harry Goulden, who ran a trading post there. He had gone all the way out to Hollywood and camped out in front of Ford's house <laughs> with a hundred photos and refused to leave until he saw him. However, he didn't have to wait long. Ford saw him right away and was immediately sold on the location since its remoteness would prevent studio interference. Nice. The crew was sequestered in nearby uh, Cayenta under very Spartan conditions. They dealt with long hours, merciless winds, extremely low temperatures because the desert gets cold at night. And uh, Monument Valley didn't even have paved roads at the time. Once again, remote location. Nobody in the studio is going to screw with them while they're shooting. Ford loved the location so much that he had the coach traverse it three times just so he could keep getting shots of it. Aw, so much B-roll! It is beautiful. It is. The aspect ratio of Stagecoach is pretty limited. Uh, we don't really have that widescreen cinematic vista appearance yet, but you know, still, just there are fewer things that are more gorgeous on a film screen than the American Southwest. And Ford would keep going back here. He shot My Darling Clementine there, uh, Ford Apache, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, uh, Wagon Master, Rio Grande, The Searchers, arguably one of the most beautiful films ever made, Sergeant Rutledge, and Cheyenne Autumn, uh, which was his last Western. This I've is... only seen The Searchers out of all of that. The people who played the Apaches were actually the local Navajo, whom for, to his credit, paid in proper union rates. This was a poor community. They probably would have worked for much less. Yeah, it's like the treatment of, you know, the indigenous population in this movie is incredibly shallow. They're just portrayed as violent people. And the fact that they were in the, the wrong tribe, but paid well, I guess that's the, you get the not as much of a jerk as you could have been a Hooray. Hooray! Great by 1930 standards. Yes, I know. And Navajo people were employed as handymen, set dressers, various other menial tasks. Over 200 of them appear in the climactic battle scene. They liked Ford so much that they gave him a little nickname. They called him the Tiny Nez, which means tall leader. Aw, that's sweet. Getting into the casting of John Wayne, once again, this was lobbied hard by Ford and opposed by Wagner due to Wayne's amateurish performances in B-movies. Ford, well, he liked the Hayes people. His way of informing Wayne that he got the part was to invite him over to read through the script over a weekend. And he kept baiting him with questions about who should be cast as Ringo. And he didn't tell Wayne that he had gotten the part until the very end. Wow, that's kind of a dick move. The film was budgeted at 392000 which was quite a bit in that day, uh, especially for a Western, which had fallen out of favor. It wound up ballooning up to five hundred grand. Now, getting back to Ford's treatment of actors, John Ford is one of those directors who believes that he can get good performances out of his troupe by constantly bullying, berating them, Oh, taunting. one of those guys, eh? Yeah. The, An the, yeah, the, the Phil Spector, Stanley Kubrick, if I treat you like shit, it'll, it'll bring a great performance out of you type. Or maybe he just likes being a tin pot dictator or a little column A, column B. A little bit of both. One person he tried to single out was Andy Devine, who plays Buck. And he just called him like a fat, worthless piece of shit and kept asking Aww. him why this talentless hack was employed on his film. And Devine responded that he was the only person on set who could drive five horses. So go find someone else if you can. <laughs> 
He also tried to taunt Thomas Mitchell, who's playing uh, Doc Boone. Mitchell had a prepared speech for full of smart-ass remarks about Ford's numerous cinematic failures up to that point, including his 1936 flop, uh, Mary of Scotland. We know people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones, right? The person he was meanest to was Wayne. I kept referring to John Wayne as this big, dumb, worthless oaf. They were friends in real life, by the way. He kept (laughs) criticizing his line delivery and and even his method of walking, chastised him for moving his mouth too much and not acting with his eyes at all. One time he grabbed John Wayne and physically shook him, just screaming in his face that the rest of his face has to react to stuff too. I'm surprised that he didn't get cold clocked by somebody at least once. I guess Wayne was just desperate. He was just like, this is my first chance to be a leading man. Oh, he'll take it. Yeah, he just sat there and just took it. Uh, ultimately, I guess Ford liked him because there are a lot of expressive reaction shots of John Wayne in, the, in this film. Yeah, he's actually acting. And the hat that John Wayne wears in this film, it's in a whole bunch of other ones. It's the exact same one. I guess he considered it a good luck charm or something. Aww. However, by the time he got to Rio Bravo in 1959, it had fallen almost into ruin. Well, that's 20 years of hat wearing. So from that point on forward, uh, Wayne displayed it under glass at his house. That's kind of endearing. Later on, John Ford was asked a couple of continuity questions, uh, the most prominent being asking him why the Apaches didn't just shoot the horses during the chase scene, because, you know, that would have ended the chase right away. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Ford's was, doing that would end the movie, and the good guys would lose. (laughs) This is the Hayes Code world, where (laughs) they have to have a happy ending. Also, uh, apparently, historically, uh, Apaches were more likely to try to steal horses from people that they attacked. Animals were valuable in calculating a warrior's worth in certain subsets of uh, Apache subculture, Mm -hmm. at least based on what I could read. Makes sense. So, hey, there might be some historical precedent, but we'll be talking about historical revisionism and mythology a little later on. I mean, the entirety of, you know, the public perception of Westerns? Yeah, it's not coincidental. Well, getting into the cast here, we've been talking about Wayne pretty much throughout, but once again, this made him famous. One of the reasons why John Wayne is the traditional icon of stoic American masculinity in the 20th century is because this film put him on the map. And I do think that the decline of appreciation in uh, John Wayne is sometime in the middle of the 20th century, late 60s, early 70s. is pointed and also the decline of Western mythology. Also, the rise in the ascent of, say, James D which I sort of consider the anti-John Wayne. Yeah, I, I could see that. Even though it's interesting, though, is that James Dean was probably queer in some way. So that would add another dimension to him as a symbol of, you know, American masculinity. Uh, at some point, I think we're going to be doing an episode on Rebel Without a Cause, so we can do more of that later. Oh, yes, we can. It is interesting in some ways that John Wayne is considered like the definitive American masculine portrait because I mean for one thing he lifted almost his entire persona from stuntmen the way he walked the way he talked the way he got on a horse all that stuff it's very much an affect his real name is Marion John Wayne was picked out as a stage name because it sounded gruff yeah but when you hear the name Marion you think of you know nice old grandmas and not John Wayne and there's also his history of being a chicken hawk oh yeah To be fair, there were periods where he attempted to enlist and 
other people, studios, producers, the army itself wouldn't let him do it. And then this later on when he was just rattling the saber and banging the drum for everything, including Viet fucking Nam, it might have been a bit of overcompensating there. There does seem to be some evidence that he was ashamed that he never quite participated directly in frontline combat as opposed to, say, Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, I mean, there's the whole idea that, you know, he wants to, he talks the talk, now he wants to walk the walk. And he never quite got to do so. No. But uh, something that's been coming up recently, oh, and another yeah. reason why Wayne's esteem has declined with every subsequent generation of cinephile is... Some of his, a lot of his, yeah, a lot of his outdated views, highlighted by a Playboy interview, which I have pulled the excerpt right here, and I am quoting: uh, "We can't all of a sudden get down on our knees and turn everything over to the leadership of the blacks. I believe in white supremacy until blacks are educated to a point of responsibility." Yeah, that's that's really shitty. And what year? Did, when was this interview? I, I I don't know the exact date, but it was in the nineteen seventies. Okay. Yeah, and that, that's shitty, because that, those views were, like, already back then. We're judging him by the standards of his own time a little bit, as well as us, you know, judging what he has to say now. When you look into the civil rights movement and, you know, various reactions to it, uh, a lot of the scholarship I've come across is that most of the pro-segregationists would have balked at the idea that they were being seen as racist. Like, they genuinely thought that they were doing the right thing and enforcing segregation because black people were inferior and they need to be put over into that other place and they thrive better there and integration will just cause chaos and we're not the bad guy, why do you think we're the bad guy? And what really struck me is when I first came across that quote, this was in a compilation of like various Playboy interviews and stuff. You got it for the stuff. articles. Yeah, I got it for the articles. <laughs> but yeah, I was going through it with my, uh, with my friend and they have little interview excerpts and that John Wayne one was included. And he looked at it and this is like 2009 and he's mm-hmm. like, well, John Wayne has a point. Oh, oh, yeah, God, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he and I aren't on speaking terms. So, yeah, I mean, I, I feel that... It, I really hope that I don't need to explain why this quote is shitty to anyone listening to this. Yeah, I would hope. If you if you agree with John Wayne, stop listening and never speak to us again. Oh, no, I'll, I'll give you the benefit of the doubt. All right. To the best of my understanding and the best of my ability to articulate this, which admittedly is limited. Yeah. If you are the impressor. It is not appropriate for you to be the one who sets the timetable for somebody else's freedom. Uh, there are plenty of other quotes or articles or think pieces. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, uh, John Lewis, who can not only state this better than I can, but also draw upon their own personal experiences to highlight this. But if a person is benefiting from an unequal social caste, and they're the ones who get to determine when equality is given to others, the time frame they're going to give for that is never. Yeah. yeah, they will always find an excuse to not grant equal citizenship to oppressed minorities. There is no shortage of historical evidence to suggest this. It has always been demanded. It has always been wrested from the oppressor with as much reluctance as they can get away with. And I honestly read and listen to all of the people Ryan just mentioned. I personally uh, read the autobiography of Malcolm X as told to Alex Healy. 
about two months ago, it's very illuminating. I wasn't expecting Malcolm X to be funny in place. It's like one of the sweeter stories in there is him basically talking about how he had a crush on Betty, the woman who became his wife, and how after a certain point, he thought that having a crush on her was distracted, so he just started avoiding her every place. And sleeping with other women, but he doesn't mention that. Yeah, well, we'll see. Okay, getting back to the film. Claire Trevor, who plays Dallas in this, apparently Dudio liked the way she played off with uh, John Wayne because she was his romantic counterpart in two other films. Which ones? I, I didn't, yeah, I really should have looked it up. I didn't bother to. But yeah, she's delightful in this, and Dallas is a thorny character to do well, and she plays her with a lot of vulnerability and dignity. Yeah, I, I think that the ending is that she ha- she is redeemed because she, you know, seeks the traditional role for a woman. Hayes Code. Hayes Code, which is marriage and assumably uh, a family because most she holds the baby more than the baby's mother does. And there's a scene yeah. where you know John Wayne is escorting her to her location and he finds out that it's a cat house and he doesn't care. And that is when she is forgiven for her wantonness. Yeah, which we're going to talk about more is that in, in real history, sex workers in the Wild West were making bangs. Yes, more on that in the thematic bit. Yeah, more on that later. Next is Louise Platt, who is playing Mrs. Mallory. Now, one of the most delightful aspects of this character is that she's very prim and proper and puritanical and clutching her pearls, and she was not like that on set because, of course, it's more fun when it that way. Yeah. Yeah, she kept pointing out that Wayne had a nice ass. <laughs> and, according, and according to some, they were, they were having a little fun on the side. Honestly, if I was stuck in the middle of nowhere, I would want to have a little fun on the side, too. I am shocked that these people were not just constantly banging each other. John Carradine, who is the only actor paid less than Wayne, as I pointed out earlier, and yeah, he has that little reedy scumbag mustache, and it's a limited role, but he plays it to a T. Carradine is, like all of his children, a total hack actor who has thousands of DMDB entries. Mm-hmm. And he's good in good movies, and he's an interesting character actor presence. In other? <laughs> in, in ones that aren't good, which is the most you can ask from a character actor. He's also the worst Dracula. I can see that. He does kind of look like discount uh, Christopher Lee. That's the thing. He's supposed to be like Bela Lugosi. Like in, okay. the, in the later Universal films, you still have Lon Chaney Jr. Wolfman and Glenn Strange is the Frankenstein monster at that point. But he's got the pancake makeup on. He still looks okay. And then this other guy is like riding on. You're like, where's Dracula? Who's this asshole? Andy Devine is Buck, who, he's another one of those guys who's essentially playing the same person. Yeah, I, I actually thought he was Slim Pickens for a bit because of the voice, but I was like, no, that's not Slim Pickens. You have possibly seen him in an episode of The Twilight Zone, which is also a Western. He's this guy who owns a run-down general store, who's constantly telling these tall tales that nobody believes. Yep, I've seen that episode. And he gets kidnapped by aliens who no. think that his bullshit stories are actually true, and after he escaped from the aliens, he tells everybody what's happened, and like, that's bullshit, man. Yeah, yeah, it's the the first ridiculous story told that's not a lie, and (laughs) he's still shocked that nobody believes him. boy cried wolf. Yeah, it's a a cute episode, and he's, he's very good in it. And then Thomas Mitchell... Yeah, it took me about halfway through the movie to be like, it's Uncle Billy from It's a Wonderful Life. Like, why did that guy, he looks so familiar. And what else has he been in? At first, I thought he was the Wizard of Oz, but he's not. Sylvan pointed it out to me. Well, he's Uncle Billy, and 
It's a wonderful life. He's just so great in this. And he it's, feels every second he is on screen. And once again, it, it is a very broad performance, and we'll, I'll be talking more about that also in the thematic bits, but there are scenes where he is allowed to broaden out a little bit. I mean, in, in this period, all movie stars are, and even character actors and minor supporting players are playing, like, very limited range, but the part where he's delivering the baby, he just nails that. Oh, yeah, he actually gets serious, and he does get serious. It's good. And for the reception of this film, it was an immediate critical and commercial success. Orson Welles notably cited it as a perfect movie just in terms of pacing and delivery and all that. He watched it 40 times before he started Citizen Kane. That's devotion right there. Oh, he's just pouring over it with a notebook, making little citations like, oh, that's a good idea. Oh, I'm going to steal that. Okay, as the person who also watched Citizen Kane for the first time for the podcast, literally the first episode, we were still like, we don't know what we're doing. As opposed got, to now, where we definitely know yeah, what we're we doing. Yeah, we know more of what we're doing now. I gotta say, Stagecoach is a much better movie than Citizen Kane, in my own humble opinion. Scalding hot take here. I wasn't impressed. There you go. Go listen to the episode. I feel weird getting into Oscars because I don't consider the Oscars to be as big of a deal as they're supposed to be, which is what everyone talks about with the Oscars. But anyways, it won a couple of them. Thomas Mitchell won for Best Supporting Actor, well-deserved. yeah. And it also won an Oscar for its score, which is a piecemeal affair. The composers included uh, Richard Hagman, uh, W. Frank Harling, John Leopold, and Leo Shukin. The uh, the soundtrack, is, the score is, is very on point for every scene. Oh so yeah, it's a little too like ooh, it is dramatic. a little it is a little on the nose by modern standards. The past 15, 20 years of filmmaking has sort of promoted the idea that the score should be in the background, not drawing too much attention to itself, just sort of gently lifting various scenes. Which I can understand the thinking behind that. Although I am a sucker for those big operatic in your face. I am a character in this movie too. Type of scores, you know, your your, your Star Wars, your good. The bad and the ugly. Yeah, I agree. Stagecoach, I wouldn't say, is on the level of those, the two most famous film scores of all time, but it it does its work, and it is a little on the nose. John Williams, two of the best, you know, composers of movie scores of all time. It got a bunch of nominations. It was nominated for Best Picture, Best Editing, Best Cinematography, and John Ford got nominated for Best Director. It was the only time he was even nominated. Which is odd, considering that he's one of the most noteworthy directors in Golden Age Hollywood. Hey, you win some, you lose some. Well, the Oscars are... Bullshit? They're not a good indicator of what is going to stand the test of time. They are an interesting window into what they thought was going to stand the test of time. Yeah, honestly, I really don't take much stock in the Oscars, personally, especially when they decided that Mad Max Fury Road might have been an action movie, but it was definitely the best movie as a whole that came out in 2015, won all of the, almost all of the other Oscars it was nominated for, and then they gave the Oscar to Spotlight, which was a good movie. It was just okay. And then, I don't know, I was really, really surprised that The Shape of Water got Best Picture. And I loved The Shape of Water, but I was just like, wow, they're giving it to a genre movie. Hey, for the next 20 minutes, let's talk about how much we hate Crash. Yes, Crash is a bad movie. I had to watch in my English class, and I was like, wow, this is a really racist movie about why racism is 
bad. Let's not talk about crash meat. Please, I will never pick it to talk about on this podcast. And I know some, I have picked movies where I'm just torturing Ryan, but I will never pick Crash, ever. And getting back to Stagecoach. Yeah, All right, the Stagecoach is back on track. The original negatives for this film are lost. Oh, that's too bad. Dozens of independent companies have held the rights to this film over the years, probably contributing to how the negatives got lost. John Wayne had a original print of the film that had never been through a projector gate. He had, I guess, kept it as a sentimental memento. He allowed it to be used for a 1970 restoration, which mm-hmm. all subsequent releases of Stagecoach are based on that one. I mean, it looked pretty good to me. It wasn't like grainy or choppy. Yeah, it's, it's about as nicely preserved as anything where you don't have access to the negatives can be. Now, for the thematic portion, I think we're just going to rip this band-aid off right away. The depiction of the Apaches. Is bad. Yes, it is. Now, this takes place in 1880, which is, if you're up on your American Western histories during the so-called Indian Wars, which is when the American Indians are Native Americans. There isn't an agreed-upon basis over which one is better than the others. Some groups prefer one, some do the others. If you're talking about specific tribes, you are encouraged to use the specific tribe name. Uh, Yeah, this is when just about every tribe in that particular part of the country is being forced onto reservations with great hardship and often violence. The film is completely divorced from its context, as Sylvan pointed out. This is from the perspective of the white people. So when the Apaches show up and start raising a ruckus, they just show up to do it because they want to hurt people. They're, they're yeah. here to burn things down. You're, you were not told why because the white people in the film do not care. Yeah, and there's definitely the veneer of we must protect these white women hanging over the story. Like, there's one point where it's supposed to show that, you know, Hatfield is, oh, he's a reply guy even when they're dead. Like, there's this dead white blonde woman at the, um, the ferry point and he covers her with his jacket. Uh, granted, I don't think Hatfield should be left alone with Mrs. Mallory, but... Uh, oh, God, no. Uh, yeah, the film does depict the Apaches as mindless, bloodthirsty savages. Which is not good. It's damaging. And someone pointed out that the settlers, because we're going to call them settlers in this context, are able to fend off the Apaches despite their lack of martial training and their very limited firepower. You know, we, we have your movie hero logic where everyone is at a brisk trot or even faster and they're still able to like pull off these headshots with 19th century rifles from hundreds of yards away. Yeah, I mean, the accuracy is not that great. I mean, the guns or the depiction. So yeah, I'm not saying, once again, that Stagecoach needs to be removed from the historical record, or you need to burn it down or cancel this film. I am doing this podcast to talk about this film and why it's important and worth talking about. You you still have to talk about things within the context in which they were made, and also how we look at it now. It's important. Yeah, because it's a window uh, into the time in which it was made and also a reflection of how much our society has changed since then. And it's valuable to talk about that, which is something I am going to bring up every single time that is relevant to this episode because the internet is full of people behind anime avatars who really want politics to get out of their movies and I'm not going to do that. Fuck you. Yeah, honestly, anyone who has that or unfortunately an American flag in their name too... 
Uh, all right, back to stagecoach. Yeah, another thing that's comfortable to talk about, Doc Boone's alcoholism. Yeah, it's it's played for laugh. It's never treated, I think the only time it's treated as something that maybe this is a problem is when he has to deliver a baby out in the middle of nowhere. Many a punchline in this film is just chef-kissed with uh, Doc Boone taking a swig. Yeah, like the one character that he keeps calling Reverend, who's really, he's a, a whiskey manufacturer that he's just getting drunk on his supply the whole time he's like i'm gonna protect it for you and he's just like boone's gonna guard the whiskey by consuming it one thing that i i definitely wanted to bring up is another element where his alcoholism is not brought up is that oh that lovable drunken doc boone is that at the very end of the film curly offers him a drink after dallas and ringo right off to the sunset and because this is the haze code and fallen characters need to be redeemed boone responds with just one hopefully he does stay sober but We'll see. Well, that chewed up a big old red flag with me because I have relatives and friends who have gone through with alcoholism. And the biggest cringe you have in anyone who is a recovering alcoholic is if they talk about how they're going to cut back on their drinking or they're going to stop drinking for a while. Because that is them giving themselves a back door in which to backslide without technically lying. And that struck me as what Boone is doing in that scene. Yeah, that's very valid. All right, now, I'm going to be talking about the canteen as a symbol of slut-shaming. Yeah, it, it is. And it is very pointedly shown as that way. Now, I believe that Stagecoach is remarkably progressive in a lot of areas when it comes to the idea of the judging... Woman, yeah, yeah, worker. Yeah, well, how a uh, woman shouldn't be judged by having agency over their own sexuality. And once again, this is subject to the Hayes Code and also just the mores of the time. Uh, the idea that Dallas is able to start her life over again and she isn't being redeemed by dying honorably over the course of the film. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like if they had killed her off, I probably would have been like, ooh. I mean, I would have, I could have expected them to. I mean, it, I did know that she did make it again. That, that came up while we were watching it. Yeah. Is comparable to how, say, queer people were depicted in media from this time. The, the only way for the sympathetic character to end their story, they need to die at some point. Die. Yeah. Yeah, once again, the fallen woman redeemed by running off to Mexico with Ringo. But, you know, we're talking more about how sex workers actually existed in a lot of areas of the Western when we get to Western as American mythology. But before we get there, I want to talk to the, about the stagecoach as an allegory for Western expansion and the promise of restarting one's life. And I do think that this dovetails into the manifest destiny principles of spreading civilization versus imperialism. As Daria Morgendorfer once said, most people who saw Western expansion and manifest destiny as proper and inevitable and necessary were probably not Mexican. And even the treatment of the Mexican character is like, he's a walking stereotype. I mean, he has, he's treated with, you know, respect by the characters, but maybe not the film itself. I was just relieved he wasn't a white dude in brown face. Oh, yeah, I mean, thank heavens for small favors, right? Yeah, he ends every third sentence with, I think, but at least he wasn't a white dude in brown face. Yeah. Yeah, another thing that people like to bring up is Ringo's gun, which symbolizes a firearm as emblematic of frontier freedom and individual liberty. Those terms have come up. I don't know. I don't know about that, right? 
lots of people have glommed onto it. I do believe that is part of why John Wayne has endured in some quarters as a modern day symbol of American masculine ideal and why contrarian boomers and figures in the alt-right, you know, your Ben Shapiro is, have lifted up John Wayne as this hero because not only it, it seems to piss off the snowflakes who don't like his Playboy interview, but also the uh, Western idea of a man and his gun. Yeah, but the gun that Ringo is using is far less dangerous or deadly than anything that, you know, a 17-year-old asshole can get his hands on. And another thing, in the film, he only has three bullets, which very much means that in his final showdown, the anticlimactic one with, uh, with the plumbers, he can't make any mistakes. And this also symbolizes, well, Ringo doesn't have much of a chance. The odds are against him. They are not impossible, which some people have connected to the spirit of American capitalism, where you can rise above your station in our meritocracy, and while the deck might be stacked against you, if you just bootstrap hard enough, you might be lucky enough to overcome the odds. And isn't that better than North Korea, technically us? <laughs> You should have picked a different country for that one. <laughs> Sweden or other countries. Well, I... Uh using North Korea as our worst-case example straw man. You know, Sweden would be more of a steel man comparison. Uh, yeah, that gets to the Western as an American mythology. Uh, for example, well, the mythology of America has framed the American West as this area where... White men got to do white man things. They tamed the wild frontier with their guns. Just about every Western community had tighter gun laws than now. As in fact, right now, 2020, United States, it has never been easier for anyone to acquire a firearm without going through any kind of restriction beforehand. To our great national tragedy that that is. Another aspect of it would be sex work. Now, most Western films that have sex workers in them depict them as fallen women who need to be yeah, redeemed. Or it's like they skirt along the line and it's like saying that they are sex workers. And you can kind of assume like there's nothing in the in stagecoach that's like, oh yeah, like Dallas is a sex worker. It's just something that you perceive it to be. Like a lot of issues that, you know, face code yeah, they have to tiptoe around it, but it is not hard to figure it out. No, not at all. Uh, you know, in the actual 19th century American West, as it was being settled, especially in gold rush areas, most of the men were pretty broke. And when sex work came to those areas, that's where the money flowed into. So Booze and sex. Yeah, often in western towns, the wealthiest person was the local madam, and <laughs> that allowed her to get her thorns into the power structures of the communities, and that meant somewhat counterintuitively, when the women's suffrage movement started gaining steam in the early 20th century, the first states to do so were western states, like Nevada. And the first female governor in the United States was Nellie Taylor Ross, who was the governor of Wyoming in 1925. That's earlier than I thought it would be. Money money means power, so if, you know, you're the, the local nana, you know, one of the popular sex workers, you have money, you get to start bossing people around, and not getting thrown out of town by the teetotaling bitty spinsters. And while I'm sure that cherry-picking revisionist conservative Western historians can find instances where sex workers were driven out of town by people like that, there is ample evidence that Dallas would have been running that town. Yeah, she'd be like, well, you can leave. <laughs> I'm staying. 
that blows through the entirety of my notes, and we are approaching the one-hour length, so oh, I think it's time to wrap things up. Is there anything about Stagecoach that we haven't discussed that you would like to finalize things with? Hmm, I don't know. I had, I really enjoyed it, but part of me was like, I would have liked to have seen more scenes between Dallas and Mrs. Mallory. You know, give them a few more chances to bond, maybe. But I can understand why they couldn't, because both of the things that happened to them, sex work and childbirth, are things that were limited by the Hayes Code. Yeah, I, I do think that one of the more meaningful scenes is when Mallory accepts Dallas's shawl, because they're trying to connect as people, but they're from very different social strata, and there's this big barrier between between their casts and while over the course of the stagecoach ride they got to know each other more as people and not as the stereotypical figures they entered in as as doc boone put it this is probably the last time we will be facing each other in the same room in the same spirit okay and one other thing that it kind of made me think of is that all of these western archetypes probably before they even really were cemented as archetypes the whole time i was thinking about like oh a bunch of people stuck in one location they're all very different. I'm just having flashbacks to my childhood marathons of Gilligan's Island. You'll find a way to talk about Gilligan's Island and everything. No, maybe once. This is the second time in my recollection that we've talked about Gilligan's Island. If you're talking about Gilligan's Island negatively, I will pick it for my episode. Yeah, you're going to do that eventually. Yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, but no, I, I really, I like Sagecoach. It was fun. I've seen a lot of Westerns, but... I feel like after a certain point, they do kind of blend together a bit. But I haven't like sat down to watch one in a while. I do think it's fair to say that Stagecoach transcends its genre. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, in the same way that, say, like, Halloween or Pretty Woman. Mm -hmm. One bit that I haven't mentioned yet that I think I really should is that there is a part of me that I think it's very curious that Stagecoach is what turned John Wayne into the emblematic Western superstar, because while he's fine in this, he is by no means the reason why this film works. No. Yeah, he doesn't even appear in it for quite a while. Yeah, yeah, the tail end of the very long uh, act one. Yeah, it's definitely an ensemble piece for sure and i think that even over like john wayne movies i've seen this is not his best performance he's you know eh, maybe on mcclintock but he's funny in mcclintock and in the searchers he plays a real bastard yeah my favorite john wayne movie i mean aside from this one which i don't think counts as a john wayne movie because he's, he's not john wayne he, yet he's not john wayne yet and he's a minor supporting character it's probably rio bravo I, I feel like I've seen that one. I just, I remember. Yeah, Dean Martin's in it too. He plays a drunk. And I probably have seen it. Oh, and also one one last thought on my end is that when I was watching this, by the time we got to the end, I just wanted to watch Blazing Cells. I felt like I, after watching like the usual Western, I wanted to watch something that kind of takes it down quite a bit. My first Western was Blazing Saddles, oh, if that counts. You, you didn't even get, like, all the context <laughs> for what the genre is supposed to be. Like, it would get Blazing Saddles. Yeah, aside from cultural osmosis, I knew what a cowboy was. <laughs> All right, and on that note, I think that should be it. Good night, everybody. Yeah. See us next time. Bye.